Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I definitely work with quick action, quick mark making, quick thought, and then long pauses to think about what I did and what my next move is going to be. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. This week, I'm talking with mixed media artist Kelly Wynn Conrad. In the conversation, we talk about the challenges of not going back to your old self, the opportunities of limitations, and Conrad walks us through her five principles of color, plus a whole lot more. Friends of the show at Gloss and High Gloss, your bonus conversation is ready on Patreon. We discuss burnout and the power of letting go of old work and those ideas never realized. It might make you rethink your space and materials. I know it did me. Plus, there's another 11 bonus conversations on there if you haven't yet checked them out. I'll have the link in the show notes. Speaking of show notes, you'll find those at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 42. All right, here we go. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get started in art? Well, hello, Kelly. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. Like most people started painting when I was a kid. I was inspired a lot by my family because I'm a fourth generation artist. Great grandfather, great uncle. I still have memories of painting on his porch when I was like five years old. My father, he's been a professional artist almost his whole life. And so I just kind of naturally fell into it. In high school, of course, I took AP art and I helped work on all of the big art shows that we were doing in our community, art walk and whatnot. And then things kind of took a different route. Yes, I went to college for a couple of years, but I realized that I needed a little more structure to my life. And wouldn't you know, I went and joined the army. I got out of the military, had kids, went back to creating, but I was creating for paper arts and scrapbooking and crafting and all of that kind of stuff fed my creative desire, but didn't quite take me back to my roots. So once again, enrolled in art courses and made a decision, a pretty bold decision, to put down the paper arts and pick back up the paintbrush. And in 2012, I entered into my first art show, and it's been a whirlwind since then of creating art for shows, curating, being on jury selection for art, and even a show in New York City through a co-op gallery, which was really exciting. But I had this aha moment that these weren't the things that were going to propel me to where I wanted to get to. And as my community online grew of other artists asking questions, and it was so much fun to be able to engage with them and discuss about art and answer their curiosity. And from there, my whole education program kind of was born slowly over time. And here we are. What sort of compelled you to pick up the brush again? What was it that you felt like you weren't getting that you felt like you could now get through sort of mixed media and paint and that side of art? Oh, that's a great question. When my last son was born, that's when something clicked in my head. But it would also be the culmination of having 
created a lot of product with other people's product. So here I was using someone else's ideas, someone else's design, someone's stickers, someone's pattern paper, and I was creating lovely layouts and I was getting published. I was even teaching scrapbook classes. I would do trade work for the big trade shows, but I was getting paid in scrapbooking supplies. So (laughs) there was this moment where I was like, okay, what I really want to do is create something that's just completely original thought of my own. Of course, there was nothing original under the sun, but at least I knew it was coming from me. And also, you know, I was watching my father excel with his art career and I was spending more time with my great uncle and in his last years of his life and seeing the breadth and width of his career. And it was like, well, this was what I was born into doing. So why am I not going back to it? You know, what was the fear? What was holding me back? There was this thought when we have young kids that it's too hard to paint while you have children. Well, now in hindsight, I realize that's not true because with my very youngest, I painted from the time he was about eight months old on. So that told me I could have done it all along, but there's a psychological hurdle to jump over. So it was pretty much the combination of both those realizing I needed to create something more authentically myself in my own voice. And then having that last child, which I knew that was the bookend to my child birthing years. So it was like, okay, now it's time to move forward with your dreams. So it was pretty much just kind of like a natural progression to come back. What are some of the challenges of mixed media as a medium? For myself or for my students? Let's start with you. For me, it's keeping myself from going back to the crafting times. Believe it or not, I had an aha moment as I cleaned out my studio this summer, which took me all summer long, to let go of the cutesy things. Now, if that's how you create, great. But for me, I wanted to make sure that I was creating really like natural and raw. And so I had to let go. Like It's very easy with mixed media to come back to those scrapbooking days and using fun products. But I really want to stay like really with some basic supplies, paper, paint, mark making tools, and the surface so that I'm not really like getting into the glitter and the, all that kind of stuff. But I think there's still a way to incorporate if that's the desire that you have to go. But for me, that's my challenge is to make sure that I'm not going back down that route. So as far as my students go, I would say for them, it's a lot of it has to do with just giving themselves permission to play and break the rules. So that's probably the biggest challenge for any art making is giving yourself permission to play. And we will come back to that. Definitely. So could you walk us through your process? Give us sort of a bird's eye view of how you approach your work. As everything in life, the process changes. And of course, the very first, like probably half dozen years was a lot about just relearning the materials, trying out different mediums, figuring out what I liked and what I didn't like. But eventually, probably just a good handful of years ago, I settled on the fact that I love to work in layers, layers of mark making, luminosity of the paint, maybe some paper, not too much, and another layer. And I see this all build up. So I definitely work with quick action, quick mark making, quick thought, and then long pauses to think about what I did and what my next move is going to be. I would say, I wish I could remember the artist that the quote comes from, but for all the time that I spend painting, I spend more time looking and thinking and observing. So which is a little bit of a challenge when I'm teaching because you really have to keep going through the process and talking it through. But when I'm painting for myself, there's definitely a lot of thinking time, a lot of fast action, and then a lot of thinking time. 
So you'll see me take water-soluble graphite or other mark making that's water-soluble, make some big gestural marks and kind of get my first raw energy out. And then I'll get in there with the paint. And I do create in thin layers of acrylic paint, which I think since acrylic paint tends to be opaque, that there's not going to be this luminosity. But with water and with some of the transparent paints, like some of my favorite Indian yellow hue, you get all this gorgeous luminosity and layers that continue to build on top of each other. And so it's just one gesture after another. Sometimes I have the idea that I'm going to be working on landscape and sometimes it's floral and sometimes I just push myself right into non-objective. So it really depends on what series I'm working on, how it's going to turn out. So I pick a limited palette and I just go for it and explore. So you will go into a body of work as a body of work, like you approach it through series. Ah, well, I just work on multiples at a time. There's no other way really for me to work other than to work on multiples because once I have one idea, it's propelling me to the next. And so I need another surface to see if that idea was valid and test it again. And so, yes, it ends up being a series because I'm limiting my palette to a certain color and a time period when I'm working is just naturally going to appear as a series. They don't always have the forethought of exactly what I know it's going to come out to be. So it will eventually turn out to be a cohesive series. Yes, just because out of naturally working on multiple pieces at once. Well, then what kind of decisions do you make then before you go into a painting? Do you have a series of studies or what does that, I guess, thinking and thought work look like before you start a quote unquote official painting? These are really fun questions. I didn't used to do any studies. I didn't use to work out my ideas, but through being a teacher and helping students work out their ideas, I've found that working in my art journal does help repeat process helps. And then also working on like cheap copy paper where I can just scribble out an idea that I know is not a permanent piece of art. It doesn't ever need to be shown. It's not for sale. I can just like scribble through all these ideas. And so At that point, I start seeing what feels natural to me. And when I set out to work on a project, I'll know in advance whether I've got the idea in mind that it'll be landscape floral or non-objective. But that's when I have to decide, like, how many pieces do you want to, like, lay out all over your studio floor? Are you working on paper? Are you working on canvas or board? And so I make those decisions kind of mostly just what I'm in the mood for at that time. And what colors are compelling me to work with them. And I will limit my palette. Every time I go to sit down and work on a series, I'm going to choose no more than about six colors plus white. And that way I have a very cohesive body of work. And it's exciting too, because I'm like, wow, these color combinations I would have never even thought of. And yet I pick something totally off the wall and then it all comes together. And it's, I mean, it would be kind of weird if you went to a concert and you're listening to both classical music and you're listening to rock and roll at the same time. So it's this cohesiveness that's kind of telling its story. It's very congruent in that way that if I have a color palette and I have a specific limit of which supplies I'm going to use and which I'm not going to use, a lot of it has to do with my mood and a lot of it has to do with what I need to teach for my students to be able to learn. I think what I hear you saying is that you set some limitations on yourself. Yeah, the limitations make it more fun. I know that that sounds so counterintuitive. And most artists think they need to buy all the supplies and have all the things with them. And when I teach classes in person, I've seen people roll up with their entire minivan packed to the rim with everything, including carts 
full of all their supplies. And then they get stuck spending almost the whole time deciding which supplies they're going to use. Make that decision before you go on your workshop or your self-study or into your studio to work. When you limit yourself, you're actually going to explore deeper with fewer supplies, fewer colors, fewer materials, and it's probably going to open up a whole world of possibility you didn't expect to have happen. One of the things that I'm so struck by listening to you talk is that there can be this idea that when we sit down and watch someone we admire paint, we are only looking at them while they are painting. And yet if we did that with you, you would have walked in with all of these choices and thought, and then it would look like in the moment that you just had that all, but you actually did all of this work. Like there's so much work we don't see the people we admire doing. We only see the brush hit the canvas, but you do a ton of thinking work before your brush hits the canvas. A ton. And I will be honest, the shower is the best place to let that thinking happen. No screens to look at, no input for anyone else, four walls, and you're just you and your thoughts. Driving time can also be pretty helpful. And there is a lot of thinking time. Sometimes I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm tired to go and ready to go to bed, but I'm turning out the lights and I'm just going to sit there and think in my mind about paintings that I want to paint and what materials I want to use. It's kind of fun. All that thinking time would be pretty boring to record for sure when you're a teacher. But there is a lot of work. Like I would say, for those of you who are like true artist hearts, you know, your mind just never stops thinking about the process. It becomes a passion, maybe an obsession. And so Yes, there's a lot of thinking time and decisions that need to be made. And it's really fascinating that when you make these decisions in advance, what you will do and what you won't do, how much more powerful it is when you get into the studio and you just say, go and put the brush to the canvas. So many people say they want to paint intuitively and they want to paint fast. Do you think that is part of painting intuitively and painting fast is walking in with really clear choices already being made? You would think after everything I just said, yes, but I'm going to say no, because sometimes those decisions aren't made and you're just going to have to make those choices on the spot. What helps you become a really good intuitive painter is all the years of practice. The artists that come in with very little experience saying, I'm an intuitive painter, and then they get stuck as soon as they look at the canvas because they haven't learned foundational skills. When you learn the foundational skills, color, composition, design, value, structure, all those things at least enough of a foundation that you have some confidence that then you're heading to the canvas with your ideas and not having to think about why is my painting not working? Because you don't have the skills or the understanding yet of how color works or why there's, you know, maybe it's fallen flat because they're all the same mid-tone range. And those are the kinds of things that I think really help your intuition come out because you no longer have to worry about some of those foundational things. So the artists that show up and they can paint and they can make decisions on the spot and they can really just channel that energy, I'm going to say they probably have hundreds, if not thousands of hours of work, of practice and play, experiment and terrible art, making terrible art, which is the most fun thing you can possibly do to learn how to make good art. For you, when you were building some of those foundations, did you do that through finished paintings or did you do that through small studies where you were hyper-focused on learning a thing? I took classes. I went back to the basics and took classes, some in college again, and some with really well-known teachers. I 
mostly studied through creating paintings. I started back in, when I started back in 2010, 2011, preparing myself, giving myself time to come back to art after I had that aha moment. I practiced with soft pastel. So that was really great because I really had to like figure out composition, color, and design through that. I didn't really do a lot of studies at that time. I do more studies now out of fun, out of curiosity, but it was just really trial and error and talking to my father a lot and getting his feedback and spending time with my great uncle, again, taking classes and reading books and going to museums and just seeing how did the masters do it? What made it a great painting? So it's a combination of both looking with your eyes and opening your heart and just playing and practicing. And then coming to some conclusions myself along the way, for sure. Well, then for you and your process, do you generally have a set of steps you walk through now for your process? I almost always free up the space, the canvas, the surface with gestural, quick gestural mark making. Because I'm taking that uneasiness of a blank space right off from the bat is no longer a problem. And then I can express myself in fun ways. Those layers are going to cover up. I've even had people ask, why do you do that if you're just covering it all up? Because I've given permission to just play, to to begin my piece by just playing. So yes, almost always I start with mark making, even if it's just watered down paint to make marks and big gestures. And of course, those gestures are going to be laid out a little bit according to what my ideal composition and objective is. So if I'm doing floral, there's going to be organic shapes. If I'm doing landscape, you're going to see some more horizontal and sharp shapes. But they're always just fun, fast, gestural, and then I'll start laying on layers of paint. I try to get the whole surface covered as fast as possible with something so that not one corner of it is intimidating anymore or calling to me. Some people have a completely sketched out, detailed drawing, and they work bit by bit. That's a perfectly valid way to create art, just as doing it very spontaneous is a great way to do art as well. So you have to find what works for you. But for me, it's just getting something on that surface as fast as possible. Then when you're in a painting, I mean, you're basing this on decades of experience. But if we were to slow down your thinking and watch it happen What's the thinking between this thing I just put down and now deciding the next thing I'll put down? What are you reacting to or what does that reaction look like in thoughts and then also actions? I would say that those first marks and gestures do kind of guide me to the next step. Obviously, I'll have decided, am I doing this with just mark making tools and paint or am I adding in collage material? Because I don't always do everything. But those marks do kind of guide me, like I'll see something and I'll push it to the next layer. And then I'll be certainly looking at, do I have the right value? How about the design elements? Is it balanced? Is it flopping off? Is it all stagnant and the same? And I come back to my personal one key principle is variation. Is there variation? And I find that this is really essential. I can step back and say, what's bugging me at my eye? Like with all this time and experience and understanding foundation and teaching foundation, I can more quickly now look and see what's bugging me. For example, a painting I was working on the other night, I finished it and I thought, it's so fantastic. But then the next day I came back in and it needed just one more line to cover up something that was kind of throwing me off. And so sometimes it just takes a little bit of time to take a breather. And then I can come back and look again and say, okay, what is it? So each layer 
tells me what the next layer needs, whether it's more light, more dark, more action, more quiet. So each layer is speaking to me. And I don't even realize it until the painting's done that that's what's happened. But that's what a thousand or 10,000 hours will do. It starts just becoming more habitual, like you know, and it becomes more instinctual. Well, then do you go in with a compositional plan or when does the compositional thinking start happening for you? I don't start with a composition in mind, but I tend to have very similar composition styles. This is kind of my voice that comes through. So I like high horizon lines. I like high floral lines even. And I like a certain kind of dichotomy of the dark and the light. So these kind of compositional elements are a natural reaction to my own voice coming through. I don't pre-plan that composition, but you will see with my work, my compositions have a lot of similarity. And of course, it changes year after year. This kind of keeps evolving to something new, whereas I had a lot more structured work up until about two years ago when I had a breakthrough with my work that then became a lot more free and organic and gestural. And so it became more exciting. So my compositions and my mark making change over time as anyone who's creating for a long time, it's going to evolve. You don't have that composition in mind in advance necessarily. It just, it becomes, I wish I could give a clearer answer to help the students who are listening, but this is what time and experience does. You just like, how did you get when you were driving? How did you get to that place? I don't know. I just do it every day. So it just naturally happens and you forget how you got there. It just happens. Well, then for you, do you have a conscious switch between intuitive work and then left brain analysis? Mm, I must have. I don't think that I really thought of it that way before. But now as I think about how that composition evolves, that layers of paint evolve, there's the fun and play and then the stop and think. And then that's when I have to stop and say, okay, what's working and what's not working. So that analysis does come to play. Oftentimes, not until I'm about two thirds of the way finished with the work. I allow it to be play for a long time. And sometimes pieces just don't work out. In fact, I challenge you to find an artist that every piece works out just perfectly. So there are times where I need to abandon completely and paint over. And there are times that you push too far. You had a perfectly lovely painting and then you went too far. And that's when that left brain did you some disservice by overthinking it all. But there is a balance between just the play and the fun and the creating and then the stepping back analysis on what's working and what's not working, what needs to happen. Again, like I said, there's a lot of time thinking, not just before I get into the studio, but I love to take a break from work and sometimes just photograph it. And later after dinner, look at those photographs and say, okay, what did I do today? Which of these five pieces and in the stages that I did, what did I love? What did I love about the experience? What was working? What colors are speaking to me? And where would I want to go with this next? And I wake up in the morning, I check again, and I'm like, ah, I have an idea. And then I can run to the studio and fix whatever it was or add to it, or hopefully not get distracted and wait weeks to come back, because that has happened before as well. What I love about these interviews is that there's just so much thinking that happens in art. And as people who, like, you know, like on the internet, you go on Instagram, and you just see grid after grid of beautiful work. And artists write beautifully about their thinking. I don't think thinking is completely opaque to us. But 
it's so much thinking. There's so much thinking that happens behind every piece of art we love. And probably the better the art is, the more thinking, either over the course of their life, the course of that, you know, like that went into that piece. There's just so much thinking. And that's what makes it so exciting because you know that heart and soul went into the work. When that's missing, you can tell. You can tell when someone created something just for the sale, for the show. And when you're doing that and you're replicating what you see, you've taken the heart and soul out of it. In fact, my father said this a million times to me when I'm having discussions early on, what's popular? What will sell? And he goes, if your heart's not in it, it'll never sell. And he's right. When I struggle through and I'm making what I think the audience wants, I struggle to sell. But when I let myself go and I'm free and I allow all of me to go into it. And I think you're right. When we see this art, we think in these little teeny snapshots on Instagram that, oh, it was just so easy, but it's never as easy as it seems. It's all the heart and soul and sweat and blood and tears and everything that went in in between the time that you were actually painting. So we're going to transition into color. Kelly, and I'll have a link to this in the show notes, has a book called Mixed Media Color Studio. But first off, what's the biggest challenge you see in your students when it comes to color? Using too many colors at all mid-range value. Almost always when a painting is someone struggling through the painting, I can see that's the first thing. They've chosen to put all the paint out on their palette and they're using it all in equal amounts, equal amounts, blue, pink, red, yellow, green, or, you know, whatever they've chosen. And they're using equal amounts and it's all mid-tone and it's all saturated. And after they've spent some time learning from me, I can see that change and evolve. But that is the first struggle I see. I can tell for those artists, it doesn't come completely natural. That's what they end up doing is creating a rainbow, which you would think would be lovely. But without the contrast, there's not going to be anywhere to really like sink your teeth into with the artwork. It's all homogenous. And that's not as exciting as when there's some drama happening with your color combinations and your value ranges and all this kind of stuff that really needs to happen to make color work for you. If someone is just getting started in color, what are sort of the foundations that they need to understand about color? I love to use color as my tool to teach the entire process of painting, which is a little bit different than many other teachers teach because many of them will come to you and say, value is the most important thing or whichever principle that they want to adhere to. And I understand without value, your painting is going to be boring. But what we respond to first is color. When we're looking at a painting, we respond to the color. When we are picking out our clothes, we're picking it out based off of color. When we decorate our home, when we're picking our car, we're basing it off of the color that we love. And it even comes down to picking our paints for our artwork. So I love to teach through the lens of color, the entire spectrum of how to build a beautiful painting. And the first thing that I'd say is do the old fashioned color wheel, but let's try it with modern primary colors. Primary magenta, primary cyan, and primary yellow. When I walk students through this actual process that they've seen, maybe they've filled in the blanks before and gotten out their tubes of paint and they've gotten out their, you know, nine or 12 colors and they fill in the blanks. It's not the same as taking just those three primaries and mixing the colors, literally mixing a beautiful spectrum of those colors. And I take them through that process. And then I teach them how to change those colors even more by muting them, altering them, 
changing their value, seeing how color itself has value, whereas yellow is going to be your lightest and those purples and those indigos are going to be your darkest. So now we can start taking all these elements that we need to put into our painting and seeing them through the lens of the paint that we're using. There's this aha moment that goes, and I've seen this comment over and over again. I feel so fortunate to hear a student say, I went through a bachelor's degree in art, and yet I never understood color like I've understood it through these lessons. It's because I came up with a different way to teach it rather than old school study. It's a more practical application. And that came about because I was doing color palettes and people would say, well, how do I get those colors? So I said, well, let's see if we can standardize this. And I figured it out by using those primary colors. Most manufacturers of paints now use or have as an option to purchase primary cyan, primary magenta, and primary yellow. I love golden paints, but most of the brands have those colors. I challenge anyone who's listening right now to just pull them out and see what you can mix in a rainbow using just those three colors. You'll be amazed. Now, you can still go to the old-fashioned cadmium red, ultramarine blue, and cadmium yellow and make color wheel as well. The colors just will be different. In the end, you're not going to have as vibrant of a purple or a green. You're just going to have a different color palette. And maybe that's the color palette you choose to use. Or you could go even higher chroma. And that's the beauty. Then we take it on to the next level. Once we've learned how color works, then we get to take it on to the next level. And that's when it gets really fun. So if all these colors exist, we can buy hundreds of colors in tubes of paint. Why is it important to learn to mix your own color? The way you see color will change completely. You'll understand when you look at two yellows that one has an undertone of green and one has an undertone of orange. And when you start mixing it, then you'll understand why. Sometimes you end up making mud or the colors don't look quite right together or what happens when you have all the colors and you've suddenly made a muck of it. When you can mix your own colors, you're going to start seeing everywhere you go. You'll be like, oh, hey, look at that red on the tree right now as the leaves change. That one has a lot of yellow undertones. And it's just like it just changes. And then you'll be like, that's a muted color. I bet that it has its complementary in it or it's been toned down with gray. It's like it just changes the way you look at color so much that then when you have this like desire to achieve a certain look, you'll know which paints to choose. You'll understand better how you're going to be able to accomplish the look that you're after. But also, it'll also prevent you from making mud so easily when you have like, 16 or 20 colors on your palette, it's very quick to make a mess out of your painting. So when you learn to mix, you know you'll need fewer choices. When someone is just getting started mixing and they have these three colors plus white, and then they have the color they're actually trying to mix to, is there a strategy for how to do that? Like if I'm looking at this reference photo with this beautiful green in a tree and I just think like, I don't know, how does someone even start getting in the right direction to mix to a very specific color? I would say it's like anything else you need to play and practice without expectation of some perfect result. Put perfection away and just say, how much mud can I make today? Because you're going to be amazed when you play like that and you just keep making swatch book after swatch book and taking notes, how much you're going to learn. All right, that didn't work. It's kind of like a chemist or an alchemist, maybe even better. And you just keep playing with the proportions and the different types. Like if you take a look, one, green right out of the tube is rarely beautiful, except for green gold, which is my favorite. However, the rest of the greens I mix, but what are you going to get when you mix 
cadmium yellow with turquoise versus maybe, well, I don't think they make Hansa yellow light anymore. Thank you, Golden, for taking one of my favorite colors away. But a light yellow, a lemony yellow with like ultramarine blue. Once you start learning the different properties of the different paints, you're going to say, I'm going to get a different result each time. And so when I've mixed up all my yellows and all my blues to make a color chart, I'm going to start seeing which ones are going to create the greens that I enjoy the most. And then you can just keep pushing it further than that. It seems like it would be a tedious assignment. And I've actually had students say, do we have to do color mixing again? And I'll be like, you're the student who needs the color mixing the most. It's just like football. We're going to go out and do our drills. No matter how many times, we don't always get to just play the game. We have to practice. But make the practice fun. I've been doing all these color grids in my art journal, and it really makes it so much fun. It doesn't have to be a boring, like, student-level assignment. Make it playful, you know? Make beautiful color charts and fill in those circles however you want to fill them in. You have five principles of color. And could you walk us through those? My principles of color are based off of this idea that I want to be able to teach the principles of painting, of composition and design through the lens of color. So the first one we already talked about, which is understanding color and how it works by mixing it yourself, by really practicing it, being thorough with it and seeing. We can start with the primaries, like I suggested, primary magenta, primary cyan, primary yellow. But then we can also go and use three different primaries, like I said. Maybe you're going to go so far as to say yellow ochre and alizarin crimson and anthroquinone blue. So you pick three completely different colors. See what happens. Start learning. Pick all your yellows and blues, like I said. Mix up all the greens. Play, 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 play. Learn how color works because you're going to have so much more power. Your intuition will be able to kick in because you can put that lesson aside. The second thing that I like to work on is teaching people how to balance the chroma. Again, big challenge that students have is that they use purely saturated colors, bright, perfect, pigmented right out of the tube. Well, there's nowhere for the eye to rest. There's no push and pull. There's no contrast between that. And so when you learn how to mute the colors or choose colors that are more natural, like a yellow ochre and a rusty orange with a pop of turquoise, you've got a complement there. You've got this gorgeous muted palette with a pop of really saturated high chroma color, that's when the excitement happens. So we learn how to do that. And here's the secret on how to make a muted color. Many lessons will teach you to add gray, which you can do, and that'll make some beautiful colors. But the way I love to do my muted colors is use the complementary. So if you wanted like a beautiful dusty blue, you put a little bit of orange in it, maybe a little bit of white, and you've got this shade that you just couldn't have imagined before green, that when you put a little bit of red and green, you've got this gorgeous olive that happens. So this is when we're desaturating, we're taking it down a bit so that just a few colors are going to shine in your painting instead of everyone competing for the attention. We don't want that. We really want to be able to have something have the dominant focal point or be the star of the show. So balance of chroma is number two. Number three, color has value. So this is where we get to teach value as well. Because, and my father taught me this, he goes, why do I always make the color wheel with the yellow at the top and the blue at the bottom, blue and purple at the bottom? And I was like, well, show me. He's like, he holds up a value scale next to it. He goes, look, you're starting to think about your color as value. And that clicked for me. And so ever since then, I've really looked at my color as part of my value structure, knowing that if I have a painting that I've used 
you know, all mid-tone range, what is it that I need to do to, oh, of course, we can always add white, but oftentimes I don't add black, I'll add in that dark blue or that dark purple or that really dark red. And that will be my value contrast. So I use my colors to my advantage that way and pick very thoughtfully some lighter colors and some darker colors so that I'm creating that value contrast. And then we go on to number four, choose a dominant color, which we were kind of talking about in Balance the Chroma. But when we choose to do a variation of colors and having like, say, we're going to pick analogous colors, orange, yellow, and red, and that's going to be our main focal color over all of our painting, then we might have a little bit of a subdominant color of blue and maybe like a pop of one other color. So what we're really doing is creating a hierarchy of our color. And when we have all the colors, it's equal amounts. Again, we're still coming to this point of, you know, where's the star of the show? So variation is key in this. And I walk through this exercise where you can take three primaries, any red, yellow, and blue. And sometimes I really like to, like I said, go out of the norm. Like I love to use quinacridone magenta, Indian yellow hue, and Prussian blue. And I mix up a beautiful range, but then I choose in this painting, I'm going to do mostly yellows and then some red and then just a tiny bit of blue so that the color changes, like which is the focal point. And I'll practice this repeatedly. It's in my book as well, where I'm choosing a different dominant color overall. I see this happen quite often in abstract artwork, especially from amateurs, where it's almost like tiny brushstrokes of every color in the painting. And it may be very satisfying to paint, but there's nowhere to give you some tension, some excitement, some variation to really create drama in your painting. It's all very much almost like a pattern that you would find in print fabric, which is if you really want to go to that next level, you're going to need to pick something to be the key star of the show. And I say pick a dominant color. Sometimes in good old imperial measurements, a gallon, a pint and a cup, which is your gallon color? Which is your pint color and which is your cup color so that you're really kind of varying how much you're using of each color. Finally, which is very hard, we've already talked about this, limit your palette, limit how many paints you put on your palette paper. Here's the thing. Yes, you can choose primary magenta, primary cyan, and primary yellow, and you can pretty much mix up an entire rainbow. You're still going to have a more cohesive painting than when you put all the paints on your palette. What I love to do is pick no more than six, and sometimes it'll be a very oddball combination of like alizarin, crimson, yellow ochre, burnt sienna, and then a turquoise. And then you're like, what? Where'd that come from? But I'm also going to pick all these other rules, like choosing a dominant color. So these warm colors are going to be the dominant, and that turquoise is going to be desaturated and add a little bit of white, and then it's going to pop right on there. So I limit my palette each time to, you know, usually no more than six colors. What I love is, is when you start mixing them together and you get all of these desaturated colors and strange mixes that you weren't expecting, your painting becomes really interesting. And it's the mother color principle where you've taken all those colors and mixed them together. They naturally harmonize. When you have 12 or 15 paint colors, you're going to make mud. And they're not going to naturally look good together without really a ton of work. But especially when it comes to abstract, this is how you can make a much more powerful abstract painting. Limit your palette. Choose what palette you're going to work with for the day. And it's okay if it's not colors that you would normally think would go together. So those are my personal five color principles that I love to teach that really will help you open up 
you know, I love, love, love learning all of the different elements of design and all the different ways that we need to work on creating a painting. But when you're new to it, or even when you've been doing it for years, all those ideas can kind of conflict in your head. Now, which principle is this? Is this hierarchy? Is this balance? Is this texture? Is this line? And you're like, I don't know. But if you can just bring it down to something basic and practice that, then you know how to do this. Then you can take time for your intuition to kick in. Also, what I love about what you're saying is that when you look at it from a, this painting doesn't have to be everything. This painting is the painting I'm doing right now today, and there'll be many more, just as there were many more before. You can have the freedom to choose three colors and play. I feel like sometimes we as painters, especially for beginners, we think I have to do all the things in this painting because time is precious and resources are precious. Like everything is about this painting as opposed to, no, this is one painting of thousands. I'm going to choose three colors and I'm going to play. Yeah. For sure. I love that you brought this up because I think this is one of the things that holds back artists, even artists who have many years of experience. I only have so much time. I need to make a perfect painting. I have this great idea. And if I use it now, then why won't be able to use it later? So I don't want to waste this idea. And I don't want to waste these supplies, these perfect supplies in their tube. It's so wasted when they stay in the tube, people. Get in there and play. It's the hardest thing, but it's also the most beautiful thing. When you let go of perfection and stop worrying about all the other things and you just have that moment with your art and your limited supplies and you give yourself permission to play and you start realizing, guess what? Ideas are limitless. And our experience with this artwork is going to be at least as limitless as the time we have on this earth. Do it. Do it now. More will come. I just cleaned my studio, Kelly. And I got rid of so much stuff that I held on so preciously for dear life to use one day. And I realized that day never came because I was holding on instead of actually using it. I have journals filled with ideas that I've never used because one day I will, in that perfect moment, use this idea. But you know what? Then time passes and new ideas come. And sooner or later, you're like you said, you realize this is just one moment with my artwork. More moments will come. Give yourself permission to have fun. We did a call before this, and one of the things you talked about is how recently you had some breakthroughs when it came to color. And I wanted to ask first, like, was that surprising to you? Like this thing that you clearly have such mastery of, you then had breakthroughs around. Was that surprising to you as an artist? So surprising, to tell you the truth. And it shouldn't be because we should always be having breakthroughs. We should always be learning new things. And new information is going to come and we're going to discover through our play and through our experience, through working with other artists, through study, we're going to learn new things. So it shouldn't have been surprising, but it was because I had been teaching for so long the color theory based off the principle of using the primaries as my sole source of color and pigment and how I can manipulate them was so exciting. Like, okay, I can make a beautiful black out of these three primaries. It's surprising to many but you don't need black because you can actually mix it. And then anything else that I was looking at, I was learning how to mix. So that was my first breakthrough when I really wanted to be able to teach color. I wanted to standardize it to a way that anyone could learn. You didn't need a master's degree. You didn't have to study the famous schools of art. You just could get in there and study art. So for years, this really helped me evolve my art. But then I kind of got burnt out as many artists do from teaching 
from practicing, from playing, from making art that was sitting around in my studio and not being sold, from overworking myself, whatever. And so I took a very long break this year. And when I came back, I wanted to push myself into new realms. And I surprised myself by picking up colors that I had never really used before and seeing them work so successfully. So I didn't pick up my primary colors, which I will again someday, maybe, but I picked up the colors that I had used the least. And suddenly I was having the most fun and seeing the most interesting color combinations come alive, colors that I hadn't really used before. Sure, could I go back and manipulate my primaries to look like that? Maybe, but I would have never thought to do it in the first place. So it was by using all of these underloved colors, using my Van Dyke brown hue with some raw sienna and ochre and cadmium red with white mixed in to make one of the most luscious pinks. It's like, I was just surprised. I'm still enthralled and finally on a kick again of making artwork for myself and for fun rather than just work. And some of the experience with that and what you can come up with when, like, again, we come back to this limited palette and it's just amazing. There's always something new to learn, though. You work with transparencies. So working with transparency in mixed media, what are some of the challenges with transparency and color? Ooh, well, this is where principle number one comes in handy. Understand how color works. Because if you're going to work in layers and transparency, you're going to have to understand what's going to happen when you layer one color over another. And only through, again, a lot of play and practice are you going to be able to figure that out. But I have literally just sat and made layers in rows of colors and layered other transparencies of paint over it to see what would happen. How would the color shift? What's going to show through? especially if you do any kind of like mark making through it or scratching through it. So these transparencies is really important to understand how the colors are going to affect each other. And it should be pretty logical, but sometimes you surprise yourself. I've painted blue and I put yellow over it. You are going to get green. And this continues to build. And which ones are going to make an ugly color and which are going to make a beautiful color? In all honesty, I think they're all beautiful colors. But for your painting and what you want the results to be, which are going to work and which are not going to work. So it comes back to understanding how color works. This is why I just say it's going to make a huge difference in how that part of the creating becomes easier. When we learn these foundation lessons, we can take that off our plate of worry and we can just worry about all the other obsessive thoughts that we have. I mean, so let's learn the color and then you'll understand how those transparencies work better. And then you can manipulate it to make all kinds of unexpected marks. And that's what's really fun. And then in the end, I always end up with a little bit of opaque layers. It's just all a matter of how it's going to come together. Sometimes surprises me even. Right. Because for those who are just getting started in painting, like we often think about mixing color as physical mixing. Like I put down white and I add some cadmium red and I mix them together. But that mixing also can happen through glazing. Through glazing right on your canvas, adding the colors while they're still wet and wet. This is where the play and practice, and you'll be like, ah, crap, I didn't mean to do that. But the next time you'll know not to do that. And so it's okay. I say it's fine. It's acrylic paint. You can layer more on top of it. And it is true that a lot of the color theory will come into play as you're actually putting the layers down on your paper or your canvas. So that's why when I say no color inside and out, it's not just getting your little palette knife and mixing up little cute puddles of color. It's really 
what happens when I have these three or four colors and I keep dipping my brush in different piles of color? How do they change? How does it change when I mark it onto my canvas? And if that was still wet and I went in with this color, how's that going to look? So yes, color theory really is a lot more than just mixing up the color palette. It's how they're all going to interact once they're on your canvas as well. So if someone came to you and said they wanted to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? The same thing that my great uncle said when I came to him in 2012, as I had been studying so hard in books. I had a book about how to make brush strokes. I mean, come on. I was searching Pinterest and I was looking at art and no, it's not that looking isn't valid thing to do, but I was doing a lot more looking and reading than I was doing. And I was telling my uncle all about what I learned about the different mediums. And he's like, Kelly, put the books away and make a hundred paintings and then make a thousand paintings. And then you're going to start really knowing how to make your art. And I'm like, oh, and then I got to work and I did exactly what he said. I think you just have to make a lot of art, a lot, a lot, a lot of art. You'd be okay with it not being good art or finished art or show-worthy art and paint over it again. And there's all the other things that you can do as well. Study, take classes, go to museums. Those are all very helpful, but nothing is going to be as good as making a lot of art. You can find more about Kelly Wynn Conrad at her website, www.kellyk-e-l-l-e-e-winstudios.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And we will link to everything, including her classes and book Mixed Media Color Studio in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Kelly. Thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. Thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 42 for show notes and to add your name to the newsletter list. But before you go, click like and subscribe on your listening app. And if you've got a few minutes to spare, leave a review of the show. This helps other artists find the show and it makes a big difference. Speaking of big differences, a big thank you to everyone supporting on Patreon. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank you to High Gloss supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, and Catherine Ordway. Happy painting!